With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. Just want to be free from power, weakness, head on sea. Free, 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 free. Hello, everyone. This is Ellie, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people share share real stories of addiction and recovery. And I am on tonight with my co-hosts, Jean and Amanda. Hi, ladies. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Hello. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about shame, specifically shame resiliency, and a lot of the work that's done by Brene Brown. Um, and we're, we will apply it as, um, it as it pertains to alcoholism, addiction, and recovery. But obviously, this shame is something that we can all relate to. But in particular, all alcoholics and addicts feel shame, and it's impossible to avoid. And while shame is obviously painful, it also can keep many of us stuck and in the throes of addiction. But tonight we really want to talk about the fact that there is hope and there are tools available to work through and even overcome shame. We do not have to be defined by our shame and indeed learning tools to cope with shame and learn and grow as people is an integral part of recovery. To begin with, though, we thought it was important to define shame. And one way to do this is to clarify the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is feeling badly about something we've done, and shame is feeling badly about who we are. Guilt is based on actions, and shame is based on feelings. Um, One way to put this, I've heard this, and it always has resonated with me, is when we feel guilty, we feel that we made a mistake, and when we feel shame, we feel that we are a mistake. And in the show, we will talk about tools to identify shame, to build awareness of it, talk about the importance of reaching out to reduce the power shame holds over us, and discuss the power of story and voice in reducing and even eliminating the hold that shame has in our lives. Even though we can't eliminate shame entirely, we can aim for it, we can become more resilient to it. Tonight, we will talk about shame resilience. Again, this concept uh, coined by the brilliant researcher Brene Brown, and we will also share our own stories of shame and what we do to move through it. While Brown's theory isn't specific to addicts and alcoholics, the tools she applies directly can help us all heal. Brown describes shame resiliency as this, quote, that ability to recognize shame when we experience it and move through it in a constructive way that allows us to maintain our authenticity and grow from our experiences, end quote. I have read um, both of Brene Brown's books avidly over and over again. Uh, Actually, she has more than two, but the two that were very impactful on me were The Gifts of Imperfection, followed by her book, Daring Greatly. And um, they're both highly recommended and uh, something every time I read through them, I, I get something else out of them. So we can't recommend those strongly enough. But I'd like to turn it over to Jean to start to talk about some of the components of her theory of shame resilience. 
Well, Dr. Brown is an amazing researcher because just to embark on the topic of shame um, might seem pretty light and fluffy, and I think she found out pretty quickly that it was anything but. And you mentioned her two books, Ellie, The Gift of Imperfection and Daring Greatly. Um, I first read her first book, which was called I Thought It Was Just Me, But It Isn't, and that is a compilation of all her research. So over seven years, Dr. Brown conducted hundreds of interviews with women about shame, and she found that the women that had the highest levels of shame resilience had four things in common. And so we're going to talk about all four of those things. The first step towards building shame resilience, and by that it means you know not giving in to your shame, being strong in the face of feeling shame, uh, is recognizing shame and its triggers. So before we can overcome feeling shame, we have to first be able to tell that we're feeling it or recognize it when it happens. Brown says that we tend to first feel shame physically before our minds even realize what it is. The women in her research described a variety of physical symptoms such as nausea, shaking, heat in their faces, and chests. Um, I can tell you that for me personally, I've learned that my shoulders do something when I feel shame. My shoulders kind of hunch forward, I sort of have this just this slightly, almost an adolescent posture. And I think, honestly, I think I'm trying to protect my heart or maybe not be seen. It's almost kind of a turtling effect. So I kind of hunch my shoulders a little bit. I call it my shame shroud when I feel myself doing it. Um, So there's some questions that you can ask yourself to develop awareness of shame. First of all, to stop and say, where am I feeling this right now? Where do I physically feel shame? And you may have to look back on previous experiences of shame to really identify what was happening. It might be an achy or fluttering feeling in your stomach, a headache or trembling. Perhaps it's that sinking feeling in your gut or some other physical discomfort. So pay attention to your body because that, that is the first warning signal that something is amiss. And I think before I was aware of this, I used to think, oh, am I getting sick? Like, I'm really dizzy all of a sudden. And now I know, instead of thinking, am I getting sick, I really think, what's going on in my heart and my head right now? Mm -hmm. Um, Ask yourself, when I'm feeling shame, how is my life disrupted? So perhaps you struggle with a lack of concentration or sleeplessness, depression or irritability. Maybe you isolate or avoid people or just clam up and don't want to talk about how you're feeling. So it's interesting to note that physical symptoms of shame are very similar to post-acute withdrawal symptoms or PAUSE, which is sort of the stages of of, um, withdrawal that alcoholics go through as they're um, coming off of their alcohol addiction. We have done two shows on PAUSE in the past, so if you'd like to learn more about that, dig through our archives and have a listen to those. Shame is a big part of early recovery, not just mentally, but also physically. Ask yourself, what are some unhealthy ways that I deal with shame? Do I turn to overeating or undereating? Do I work too much? Do I strive for perfectionism to cover up or compensate for how I'm feeling inside? And do I sleep too much or do I sleep not enough? Again, trying to compensate. Do I lie to people about how I'm feeling And we know that that great lie is, I'm okay, and everything Mm -hmm. is fine. (laughs) The F word, fine, right. Fine, the F word. (laughs) (laughs) Another good question for people in recovery regarding shame is, am I drinking at my shame? 
So for someone that is still drinking or using, you know, is that part of the hurt that you're desperately trying to tend by numbing out with alcohol? So um, I think it's also important to ask, am, am I feeling very shameful about things that happen as a result of drinking? Or do I drink more to make myself feel better or to feel nothing? Uh, Dr. Brown also introduces a concept called unwanted identities, which produce shame. So these are the traits that don't match our vision of our ideal self. So for me, my shame identities, this was one of those things I remember where I was when I read about shame identities because I was like, holy cow, the whole, it was a paradigm shift for me in my recovery. Um, For me, I absorbed shame identities. I thought it was just how it was. I thought that it was just right and wrong. But I really realized after reading her work that I had absorbed ideas from overhearing adults criticize other people when I was a child. So I remember some of the older women in my family talking about someone was a bad housekeeper, wasn't a good mother, wasn't good at um, managing finances, was too talkative, wasn't talkative enough. All of those criticisms that I overheard, I thought, oh, man, if I don't want these people to say this about me, I better not do all those things. So even though no one told me as I was growing up that I had to be perfect in in arenas like housekeeping and motherhood and how I looked and how I acted and how I worked, um, I absorbed those shame identities um, from overhearing other people. And I I didn't learn until I was 47 years old that um, that I was even doing that. So that's a really fascinating thing to look at. So in order to identify these unwanted identities, because they can be very sneaky and they can feel real to us, so we, you might think, well, that's just how it is. You just have to be a good driver or, you know, you're a horrible person. But actually you probably heard that from someone who mattered a great deal to you when you were younger and absorbed it as, something that you don't want to be associated with. Um, We also just did a show on people-pleasing, and that could be a helpful resource to learn more about this. So to sort of identify what your shame identities or unwanted identities are, maybe ask yourself some of these questions. Is there a difference between the way I appear on the outside and the way I feel on the inside? Do people notice that I'm struggling, or am I really good at covering up? And, you know, I never even knew before that you weren't supposed to cover it up. I thought that was that was what made you strong, but it actually mm-hmm. hurts you. Um, do I have fear that I'll be discovered as a sh- bad or shameful person? Do I create false personalities to avoid detection? What does my inner dialogue look like? In other words, what are the things that I say to myself about myself, and how do they sound? Are they negative, like I'm worthless, stupid, weak, or broken? I uh, I criticize myself in the third person. So if I do something dumb, I don't just say, oh, that was dumb. I say, Jean, what are you doing? And again, that comes from those voices of our childhood, um, hearing other people be critical or feeling like we have to be so perfect. So listen to how you talk to yourself. And ask yourself if you feel more shame in certain circumstances or around certain people. <laughs> Holiday time, family dinners, family of origin. (laughs) Does my opinion of myself change depending on where I am or who I'm around? Um, That can be just a really, really good time to step back and go, huh, look at what's going on right now. I, I can feel myself feeling differently. 
So based on your answers to those questions, you can learn to identify shame and then take steps to reduce its hold over you by controlling the things you can control, like the way you talk to yourself, the people you surround yourself with, where you go, and practice more self-care. The second step in building shame resilience is practicing critical awareness. So when we feel shame, we think that we're the only ones in the whole world that are struggling. We think something is very wrong with us and only us. And I know I certainly thought this, that when people said, oh, you're a good person or you're a nice person, I think, "Mm," you know, if they really knew me, they wouldn't Mm -hmm. think that. Oh, yeah, I fooled you, you know. So almost sometimes a compliment from someone when you are really carrying a lot of shame, you you might um, on the outside accept that compliment, but on the inside just think, you know, they just don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. The reality is that you are not the only one that feels this way, either with how you feel or how you experience shame. Shame is a universal experience. I'm going to say it again. Shame is a <laughs> universal experience. Everybody feels it. The idea is to build awareness of the demands and expectations that you put on yourself because any perceived failure to meet these expectations leads to resentments against yourself. And many of these expectations are unrealistic or even unnecessary in the first place, so you're just setting yourself up for failure. Over time, you can develop a more balanced view of what is reasonable to expect from yourself and then change your inner dialogue and be more forgiving. This is especially important in early recovery when we already feel so exposed and vulnerable emotionally and are usually beating ourselves up for the things that we did while we were active in our addiction. So some ways to practice critical awareness also involve asking yourself some questions. First of all, ask, what expectations do I place on myself and where do they come from? Where did you get the idea that you had to be perfect in certain categories? Do they come from society, from a spouse or family member, or even from myself? And how realistic are these expectations? If you're actively drinking, and we know that some of our listeners are, and we hope that you're taking encouragement and hope from listening to us, ask yourself this, what expectations do I put on myself about my drinking? Have I tried to stop and or moderate repeatedly without success? And how do I feel when I fail to meet these expectations? What do I do when I fail to meet any expectations? Do I tell someone how I'm feeling? Do I drink more? Do I turn to other unhealthy coping mechanisms like working too much or trying to be perfect at my job or raising my kids or exercising too much? And what does my inner dialogue sound like when I don't meet my own expectations? Would I talk to another person the same way that I talk to myself? Nope. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so this is Amanda, and I'm going to continue on with the um, third component of building shame resiliency, which is reaching out. On this show, we talk a lot about the power of community and reaching out to others. Brown agrees with the importance of this. According to her, reaching out is the single most powerful act of resilience. She says that regardless of who we are, how we were raised, and what we believe, all of us fight hidden silent battles against not being good enough, not having enough, and not belonging enough. When we find the courage to share our experiences and the compassion to hear others tell their stories, 
We force shame out of hiding and end the silence. No matter what you are feeling or what you have done, there are people who understand, particularly people who are in recovery and have faced the same struggles. We witness this all the time as a result of our show when people respond to the stories they hear and they tell us they thought they were the only ones who felt that way or did the things they did. Reaching out to people who understand brings us the power of me too. When we hear our own feelings, thoughts, experiences, and someone else's story, we feel the spark. We feel that spark of hope, that feelings that we aren't alone. But nobody can know how we're feeling if we don't reach out for help. To a trusted friend, family member, spiritual guide, or at a 12-step meeting or other recovering, uh, other recovery community. Um, and I have to say, it's been a uh, lifesaver for me. Um, but let's face it, reaching out is hard. I, I actually, I know when I came into recovery, um, you know, the thought of sharing my story with other people was just um, just terrifying to me. But I found really quickly that it did, um, you know, sharing these awful things that you go through really does, you know, release you from the power they have over you. Um, so, you know, we are hardwired as a culture to avoid appearing weak or vulnerable. In most cultures, vulnerability is perceived as a weakness when, in fact, being vulnerable involves huge amounts of courage. Reaching out for help isn't shameful. It's one of the bravest things we can do. The stigma of addiction is a huge barrier to asking for help as are our own perceptions of what it means to be an addict alcoholic. But ask yourself the following question. When I listen to other people's stories of addiction and recovery, am I judging them? Do I feel they are weak or bad for getting sober and asking for help? Or do I admire their courage and strength? Do I judge myself more harshly than you judge others? In other words, does one behavior like asking for help appear ad- admirable to me in someone, if someone else does it, but when I do it, I feel badly? If it does, that's shame. The fourth part of building shame resilience is speaking shame. Have you ever kept a secret inside, living in fear that it would be discovered, and when you finally shared it with someone who understood, you actually felt lighter? This is the power of putting voice to the things that make us feel shameful. We do this every week on our show when our guests and fellow co-hosts share their own experiences. When we finish a show, we feel good, even though often we are discussing hard things or experiences that cause pain in our lives and the lives of others. This is because by sharing our struggles, we reduce the hold shame has over us when we hear others say they understand, have felt the same way as we do. We hear often that a problem shared is a problem cut in half. Trying to articulate when you feel shame is is a difficult thing to do, especially when you're too upset, frustrated, taken aback, or angry to truly express how you feel. Brene Brown says, speaking shame allows us to tell others how we feel and to ask for what we need. Ooh, that's a tough one. (laughs) If you feel too scared to reach out for help, start small. Keep a journal where you write down how you feel. Describe the things that you feel shameful about, and even the small act of getting it out of your own head will help. Find a close friend or family member and tell them how you feel. Don't worry yet about what you're going to do about anything or how to solve anything. Just get it out. Thank you, guys. There's a lot of information here, and um, you know, but I hear a couple of really clear underlying messages that you know, shame is nearly impossible to overcome on your own. Um, you know, for me, it's if I'm feeling shameful about something, 
you know, and it can be something really small. It doesn't have to be something huge. I mean, it's that's I think part of identifying shame, like the physical symptoms of shame, why it's important for me to even start to build the tools to be aware of it because quite frankly, shame has been historically such a huge part of my mindset that sometimes I don't even realize that that's what I'm feeling. But regardless, if I keep that that thought in my head and it just sort of rolls around in my head, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I can take something relatively small and turn it into something big, or I can take it something big and turn it into something devastating if I'm not um, sharing it with somebody else who I can trust and who can help me put things in perspective. And, you know, because shame really isn't based on reality. It's based on how we perceive ourselves and how we believe society perceives us, um, either as an, an individual, like a family member, or a community of people. Um, and the way we treat ourselves on the inside. I mean, it's I, there was something that I saw on Facebook today that I'm going to misquote it, but it was something like, you know, shame is a lie. Others tell us about ourselves that we believe. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm able to really dig down and figure out the facts of why I'm feeling shame, and it's usually based on some sort of action, something I've done, um, then I can sort of pull it apart and address the action as opposed to the feelings around the action because, you know, my feelings are always disproportionate. Um, but to that point, I think I, we'd like to spend the, the last second half of our show discussing shame, how we as individuals have experienced it, what we've done to overcome it. And it's not like you, you graduate from, like, shame school or something. I mean, this is something that I find I have to work on over and over again um, because I, I sort of feel sometimes like I'm sort of hardwired to, I don't know, just be a really harsh critic of, of myself. I don't know why it's so much easier for me to believe in the the bad things or the shameful things than it is to believe in the good things. Um, you know, to, to Jean's point earlier, when I find myself shrugging off compliments or if somebody says something nice to me and it makes me squirm inside and I have that inner dialogue of, oh, yeah, you're just saying that or you don't believe it or if you really knew. I mean, those are all huge red flags that I am falling into the the shame trap. And it could be a, a combination of lots of little things that are going on in my life or something large that's unresolved. Um, so, you know, I think we'll just... the spend some time being more conversational and, and uh, talk about how we feel about the things that we've talked about here and some of our own experiences, particularly as it relates to our um, addiction and our recovery. And I think, why don't we start with Jean? Let's go back to you and, and hear your thoughts on this. Oh, wow. I have a lot of thoughts on this because this, this whole shame, understanding it and learning about it has really, really fueled my recovery. I mean, Shame itself, I didn't understand how it was really feeding my addiction, but it was. And now working against shame and getting strong and understanding it really fuels my recovery. So I'm so excited we're talking about this tonight because for me, this was a really critical piece um, in the puzzle of my recovery. This this was like, you know, the corner piece, <laughs> the yeah. cloud corner piece that was really hard to find. But um, I guess... Oh, where to start? I mean, I guess I'll start with talking about perfectionism, and we have done a lot of talk about that on the show, but I really used to think that um, I was, you know what, my life is perfect, I'm doing really, really well, if I could just fix that I drink too much at night, then everything would be fine. And once we know that that's what a lot of us think, and once we stop drinking, we realize that we have to work on a whole bunch of other stuff, and then we realize that nothing was really as perfect as we thought. 
And really that need for perfectionism for me was really driven by shame. I live in a fairly smallish community and I'm in the business community, so, you know, in sort of where everybody knows each other. So I felt like my whole life was on display and I felt enormous pressure to be perfect all the time, to always be strong, composed, articulate. And, of course, knowing that I wasn't ever, but especially as my secret um, that I was using wine to sleep at night and then as over time, you know, because that became such a runaway train, uh, I had a lot of shame to bear. I mean, it wasn't just... I, it went from just thinking, oh, I'm, I'm trying to be perfect and I'm not, to really thinking, everyone thinks I'm perfect and I'm so, so not. So shame was a huge, huge burden for me. Um, when I started talking to a therapist about this, like a, a couple of years into my recovery, I felt like I was still hitting some things, some resentments that I just couldn't get over. So I went and talked to a professional and she said, well, have you heard of Brene Brown's work? And I said, yeah, I love it. And she said, well, let's talk about how she uses the idea of the arena. And Dr. Brown has taken an old quote from a Roosevelt speech in the early 1900s uh, where he talks about being the man in the arena. And when he talked about it, it was actually about citizenship and nation building. But she sort of reuses his fabulous quote to talk about shame. And so the concept of it is... is um, to very badly sort of um, summarize it, he says, you know, I would rather be the man in the arena digging through the mud and, and shoulder to shoulder with other people that are doing the hard work than to be the critic in the stands that sits up high and kind of looks down and judges everyone. So we talked about that, about how when you're in recovery, you are down there. You are digging away in the dirt and the, you're surrounded by other people that are doing the same and it's hard. And yeah, you know what? There are people in the stands that do maybe look down and criticize, but do you want to be them? Do you want to be the critic who doesn't get dirty and isn't really working on themselves but is criticizing those who do? Or do you want to be the person in the arena who's doing the hard work? And, yeah, it's dirty and sweaty and not always pretty, but it's it's really the place to be. And I love that image. I use it a lot. And here's what I want to share with you about it as it pertains to my recovery. So my challenge was that, well, what do I do about these people in my life? Like, yes, I know they're the critics in the stands, but maybe they're also a family member who I need to have in my life. And why? how do I gap, bridge that gap between the two of us? How do, I, how do I live with the fact that I feel shame in front of them because they're criticizing me, or how do I stop them from criticizing me? And I, I came to realize with some help of a professional that I was really resentful that they weren't coming down from the stands to get dirty in the mud with me, or at least to meet me where I was at and, and learn about what I was doing. So this person helped me understand that some people don't want to leave the stands. They want to stay the critic. Um, they don't really want to experience what you're experiencing or, or, or learn it the way you're learning it. And that it's okay to, once in a while, go up where they're at um, Meet them where they're at. Don't expect them to engage in you, and don't be resentful that they they aren't willing to sort of learn everything about you, but to just meet them where they're at, but know that your heart is down there in the in the mm. arena and go back I to like it. That. Am I being way too... <laughs> no, I like that a lot. No, I, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. It really gave me a lot of peace to understand this, and it really made me realize that the things that I was feeling ashamed of, of being a person in recovery, 
and of not being perfect because I held this secret was actually nothing to be ashamed of at all. In in time, and I hope this continues to grow, and I assume it will, in time the things that I felt ashamed of have become things that I feel proud of and that I am less and less concerned with the critics and the fans and more and more concerned with helping the others in the arena and being part of, of that there, but also having the kindness of heart to know that there are people that I love up in the stands and that I do need to go and visit with them once in a while and and um, and maybe who knows how that affects them in the long run. That's a wonderful um, visual. I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's very powerful. And, I, like, I think it's worth just making a cup of tea and just sitting for a quiet moment and really just closing your eyes and thinking about your life and who's with you in the arena and who are the people in the stands and maybe who do you love that's in the stands and how can you find it in your heart to still connect with them and not be mad that you have to go to them, that they don't come to you. That alone is worth, you know, a lot of quiet time and a lot of reflection. Mm-hmm. So I guess I want to say that if if there's somebody listening that's still struggling with addiction and with shame and feels really stuck, I, I just encourage you to, as we said earlier, first identify it when it's happening, when you feel that, like, that punch in your gut or that, oh, that feeling. You know, I cut someone off in traffic today trying to get where I was going, and we ended up beside each other at a stoplight, and they kind of looked over at me, and I didn't feel bad for cutting them off because it was just a driving error, but I felt bad that I felt ashamed that I'm the person in a hurry, you know, that I'm, I don't want to be this um, kind of person who's not considerate. And right away I was like, oh, that's shame. <laughs> that's not mm-hmm. real. <laughs> that's not what they're thinking. I can't read their mind. So step back when it's happening and then look it over carefully. And I guess I want to say that facing your shame can be really scary at first. But if you use a guidebook, um, like like Brene Brown's work, it's so wonderful because it starts to get really fascinating. It's almost like I couldn't I couldn't wait to go for a big walk every morning because that was when I would really think about this and mull it over in my mind and and it just became like this knot that I just loved undoing and thinking, Oh my gosh, this came from that and you know, this is from that thing that my grandma used to say about her neighbor <laughs> mm-hmm. and just realizing none of that's really true, you know, none of that's really a universal truth and it so it becomes almost its own little addiction, its own little freeing, wonderful thing and it's really only scary at first and the power of speaking out when you do feel shame and I've gotten in the habit of just saying to my husband it's almost become more of like a huh you're not going to believe this but uh, so I'll say to him hey you know what you're not going to believe this but right now I'm feeling like shameful because I, I feel like you're not eating a lot of supper because I'm a bad cook or, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. Like, I'll just, and he'll be like, what? And I'm like, yeah, isn't that crazy? That's how my brain works. But I'm working against it, you know. And um, and it's funny how just being able to say that, it takes away the shame and it also holds me accountable. And it does a whole bunch of things at once and it makes it so much smaller because I see on his face that, I'm a million miles off from what he was thinking, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. I was trying to read his mind and then project it back onto my 
know, if I hadn't have said anything, I probably would have been like, oh, I can't believe he's not eating his meatloaf, you know. I worked on that meatloaf all day. And all of a sudden that shame would stew into a resentment. Mm-hmm. So I really find that there's just so much power in speaking in. And to me, I speak it quite lightheartedly because it usually is something fairly trivial in my case. But that's really that's really the greatest power that I felt. So uh, I just I want to encourage anybody that's listening that really feels stuck in shame and really feels a lot of shame around addiction and recovery because I want you to know that we know that what you're doing is absolutely effing heroic. It's hard. It's dirty work. I mean, and it's fabulous. It's the greatest achievement you'll ever give yourself. And um, it is something to really be proud of even if, you know, the whole world might not see it the way you see it. But um, you, you need to know that in your heart. So, I love that, Jean. I love what you said about that sometimes the things that I that you felt the most shameful of become the things that, I'm going to paraphrase it badly, but it, that, that, you know, you either become the most proud of or that you learn the most from and grow the most from. That's something I can really identify with. And, mm. um, you know, it's it's not necessarily that every shameful thing I've done or mistake that I've ever made is something that I it would plop on a resume or brag about it. It's just making peace with it. It's right. being able to, you know, look directly at something and work through it and then understand with some perspective with time and patience and talking with other people that, you know, it it was a actually a great teacher. It was a defining moment in in my life and even though it stemmed from something painful, it doesn't have to be something that cripples me. And that was that was really well said. Thank you. Thanks. Now, Amanda, you're up. What are, what are your thoughts on everything that we're talking about? Well, okay. Well, so I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna do my best to articulate this, and um, and me saying that is actually something that I do a lot. And um, I'm as I'm listening to um, you know the readings of Brene Brown and to both of you, um, I'm realizing that this is this is my um, my key or my uh my sign of my shame and it's actually something that you both just did too is i diminish what i'm doing before anyone else can mm. and you both said i'm going to i'm going to quote this badly or i'm going to do this badly and i do that <laughs> constantly <laughs> busted <laughs> busted um and i just so and it's something you know just listening i'm like whoa i do that all day every day and so just um and it's and it's it's amazing and i and i hear so many people say that like i'll share at a recovery meeting and i'll and i i do it on i do it on this show all the time and i'll say i hope that made sense and mm-hmm. um and <laughs> and at the same time when we have our guests and we're prepping in the 15 minutes before the show starts we always tell them and i genuinely feel that no matter what you say you're going to help someone but um, I always feel that, you know, oh, I was a bumbling idiot or I said, um, too much or I did this or I did that. And that's, um, and that's shame. And, and I'm just thinking about it, you know, we were even talking before the show and I'm like, I don't think I really feel that much shame in my life. And, you know, because as far as recovery goes, I don't feel shame. It is, um, the, one of the, my most, uh, proudest achievements and uh, one of the things that I actually look at with great kindness and, and great um, 
I I look at it as the hardest and best thing I've done in my life, and I and I have not felt shame. And I actually talked to my stepdad, who's also in recovery. He happened to call me right before the show, and he was he said, "Oh, I saw the topic. That's a good one." He goes, "I never felt shame about getting sober, though." And I was like, "You know what? I never have either." And I think that's because of you, because I I saw you walk your journey and never had any shame about it and so when i did get sober i didn't feel shame which is not common for people who are getting into recovery i certainly felt guilt about things that i did but shame for getting sober i didn't i that was not something that i i i didn't have a shame about um getting sober or needing help actually i didn't i didn't like the idea of asking for help but i had to so i did but anyway so just to go back, I I I, um, I realized that um, one of the things that Dr. Brown talked about this I, unwanted identities has been a real key for me in the sense that my whole life, way before drinking was even a problem, this is where my shame um, comes out. I um, always felt less than when I was younger. Um, I grew. I was very much in a white uh, blue collar home living in a white-collar community, and all of my friends were, you know, honor roll students, and I was kind of just, you know, I was smart, but I was just not a, um, a good student. I just did not enjoy school, and I actually went on to college unexpectedly, um, and then I dropped out of college, and so I... I have like three years, but I don't have a degree, and um, I recognize now that I have a lot of shame around that. That I, you know, I, you know, I just never measured up to the people to my closest friends, including Ellie, you know, who's, a, uh, you know, a college, a college graduate, and you know, the people are the closest people in my life. You know, I, you know, I saw them as succeeding in different ways, and what this brought out in me is um, two things: is one was a workaholic. And I had to be perfect at work. I had to constantly achieve, and I did. Um, and it's because I have a lot of common sense, and um, I have a good work ethic. And I worked really hard, and I grew up the corporate ladder. But I still did all of the things that um, you know that we just talked about. I, I, um, I will, you know, say, I will make excuses for myself. I did it in a meeting last week. You know, I did not, I'm in charge of um, in IT at work, and I had a meeting with a consultant and another member of our staff, and in the meeting I was saying, well, you know, I'm not, I, I don't have a degree in this, but these are, this is my thought on the process, and I was actually um, very well versed. I know what I'm doing, <laughs> And um, my coworker said, oh, I don't think you give yourself enough credit. And I don't, um, I guess I say, I don't even recognize that I diminish my myself all the, all the time be, because I'm, that is my um, defense mechanism, uh, defense mechanism to uh, preempt people from being able to do that to me. And um, it's something I'm going to pay attention to and stop. i got to stop it. i got to cut it out. And, um, you know, there's a, I have a coworker who is, you know, very much an equal peer. And um, we acquired another company, and she came in, and she, we're really, like, exactly on the same level. She did, you know, except for there's, you know, she, she has a talent in one area where I, I'm, you know, talented in another area, and neither of us could do 
each other's jobs, and she says to me all the time, she's like, you do not give yourself enough credit for what you do. And um, so I've actually been looking at this recently and, you know, seeing that, you know, all this time, you know, I may have had to work hard and do, you know, that I have a lot of shame about, you know, not having this, you know, this this resume and, you know, that I can say, well, I have these certificates and I have this degree and this, this and that, and it's something that, um, that uh, you know, I've tried to overcompensate for. And um, in in doing so, I've overcompensated in other areas in my life around the house and stuff too. And I have my ex-husband used to constantly tell me, you know, oh, you're, you know, you're, aren't you just little Miss Perfect? Because not only was I achieving at work, I was doing stuff around the house, and people would say nice things. And it was, it, it was, I was doing so much, it was almost obnoxious. And I was, as Jean was saying, I was covering up, I didn't recognize it at the time, but I was covering up a lot for, at the same time I was doing all this, I was putting this pressure on myself, I was drinking more and more. And so the more that I drank and the the worse that I felt about myself, the better I had to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so it was this really, really vicious cycle that... Um, you know, it it was long after I was divorced that, you know, I broke out of that. And I, I'm, you know, recognizing now that I still hang on to these things, um, you know, these beliefs about myself. And the other thing is the other uh, unwanted identity is um, I have this real, if anyone who knows me would never think for one second that I lack uh, any, uh, even a smidgen of self-confidence. Um, because I come across it with a very strong personality. With I come across with all the confidence in the world. If you were to meet me in person, and no one would ever know on the inside, I'm just like this scared little girl. Um, and because I come across very strong, and there are parts of me that believe that, you know, believe that I am a strong, confident woman, and there's other pe- parts of me that don't believe that at all. And it's 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 really hard. It, it's um, sometimes you know it's something I'm really working on. There's times where I just I just I just um, I cry, and I'm just you know why am I broken this way? It was something. Um, it drove my mom crazy. That, that my whole life she was like, why don't you feel the way about yourself, the way that others feel about you? Why can't you feel that inside? Um, and it's this, it's, um, you know, Ellie, we, you and I have talked about it. It's this deep-seated thing, and it's, um, and it's you know, I'm recognizing now it's shame. And I don't know exactly where it comes from. Uh, I, you know, I have some ideas. Some of it's from um, abandonment as a child, you know, really early on, um, from my biological father who was just not a part of my life. Uh, for, you know, his own reasons, and um, which were related to addiction. And, you know, I have actually, I've come to terms with that a lot, you know, uh, actually since I got into recovery, I really came to terms with that because I understand him now. Um, But it's still, it's a piece of me that's, you know, um, I feel is probably always going to be a little bit broken and all I can do is, you know, use these tools that I've learned in recovery to, you know, talk to those voices that, you know, there's times, you know, I'll talk to, any one of my friends will say something about you know themselves, and I and I'll say, don't talk to my friend that way. 
Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> and I've said that would be me that she does it too, right? And 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 I and I try to do that with myself. That's a it's um, recognizing my inner dia- dialogue, and 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 that in that voice that I have with myself is still harsh. I have to say, you know, like sometimes I'll think something and I'll and I'll go, oh my god, you're such an idiot. Like why do you even think that way? So, but I'm still using negative talk <laughs> mm-hmm. instead of like something gentle. It's but but it, it's a humorous negative, um, and I've also learned. I, another tool for me is I've kind kind of learned to laugh at my ridiculous thoughts, and I guess uh, you know that's probably another <laughs> another unwanted identity identity is me um, you know just laughing off or making light of something and just brushing it off. So um, I hope that made sense. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it did to me. It did to me definitely. Mm. There's so much that both of you talk about it that I, you know, I completely relate to. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I I keep coming back to the idea of that when somebody else does something, they feel shameful about it. And I don't see it that way at all. You know, that if um, I think about this as it pertains to my relapse in particular, you know, when I would see somebody come back from a relapse and own up to what happened and and try to get back on the path and and really look at themselves and... um, and their behaviors and try to try to you know try to better themselves I would have great admiration for their courage but when it came to me having to come back from my relapse I just the, the shame was was crippling and you know we this has come up a couple of times in the show too you know that sort of false pride that you know I may not be the be- you know I'm either the best or the worst that all of those things are you know, it's kind of ego-related, and it's all just sort of a story that I tell myself about myself. And, you know, I, I really look at shame, actually, as kind of a story that I, I weave for myself about something that I did or something that I said. Um, because when I drill down underneath the feelings that I have, it's usually related to something specific. And when it comes to actions, you know, there's things that I can do. I can apologize to somebody, or I can do better the next time, or I can... Uh, there's there's definitely ways to correct actions um but feelings those are tricky you know uh, people talk about feelings aren't facts and i i mix those two things up all the time if i have a feeling then whatever i'm feeling must be real you know so if i'm the worst person on the planet that's my feeling then that's a real thing but that the truth between my thoughts and reality gets gets very blurred sometimes and so i i really as we're getting back to some of the tools like some of the things that i have started to sort of look for in myself and in my behaviors and in my outer and inner dialogue are things like, um, you know, minimizing or maximizing things. That comes back to the compliments if somebody says, oh, great job on such and such, and I say, oh, you know, that's that's really nothing. Or they say, I like your sweater, and I say, oh, thanks, it was only $5. Or, you know, I, I'll do things <laughs> to, to minimize achievements <laughs> or I'll maximize um, faults. I hardly ever maximize achievements, but I'll maximize is something that I feel shame about and um, create it into something bigger than it is, usually in my own head. And so minimizing and maximizing things, defensiveness is another one. If somebody is pointing out something that I feel shame around, I'll have this sort of knee-jerk defensive response, and that usually tells me that they're on to something, that there's some reason I'm feeling, something I'm trying not to look at or trying not to feel um, and that can be a particularly hard one because I just, you know, I don't want to look at it. I, I'm, 
that's why I, you know, I drank to go around bad feelings. So who wants to sit and look at all the bad feelings they have? It's a difficult thing to do. And um, over-apologizing is another huge one for me. You know, I get into this space where, like, I'll be walking down the street and somebody will jostle me on the sidewalk and I'll apologize to them for walking into me. You know, that kind of, that that trying to make myself sort of small and insignificant and, I was joking with a friend of mine who uh, we were walking down a city street one time and we were both just saying sorry for like every other word, the stupidest things. And she actually walked up to a street vendor to ask them um, for her brand of cigarettes. And the guy said, oh, I don't carry that brand. And she said, oh, I'm sorry. And I looked at her and I said, did you just apologize to that man for not carrying your brand of cigarettes? Like this is the point <laughs> at which we feel so responsible for all the, you know, and it's it's an insidious thing to to you know, we can joke about it, but feeling, you know, sorry for things that don't have anything to do with reality, it, it sort of, it feeds that negative way that I speak to myself and, and that idea that somehow I'm at the root of all things that are, that aren't good. Um, sorry for so asking one of, for what we need. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to say that, that the other thing I'm famous for is the whole mind reading syndrome is not asking for what I need or not saying how I feel, like the example Jean gave by you know, looking at her husband not eating her meatloaf and, and having this whole dialogue. You know, Jean was creating a story around him not eating meatloaf in her head. That's what I'm getting at, that if I don't say something, then I'll start to get resentful over something that they don't even know they've done or not done. It's all usually a fabrication of of my own creation, that I've I've created this whole scenario in my head over something small, and it becomes a resentment, and resentments are really dangerous things especially for people in recovery. I mean, I I drank over resentments. I drank over shame. And if I go long enough without addressing those things, it will lead me back to a drink again. It has before, and it will again. If I don't start to recognize the behaviors that I have when I'm feeling shameful or feeling less than or feeling even vulnerable. I mean, I think we use defense mechanisms like, well, defensiveness and anger and other things to avoid feeling vulnerable, you know, that that pushing people away before they can hurt us or, you know, qualifying things like saying, I'm really going to botch this quote. Like that's a defense mechanism because I, I, I want to protect feeling vulnerable in front of people. Um, the last question that I've really started asking myself that's been really helpful is, you know, whose mind am I in right now? And mm-hmm. and the only way that I can explain that like, I mean, is, the, is what has happened recently for me is the hol- what I'm calling the holiday card fiasco. It's a difficult Christmas for me this year, newly separated, and my husband's not living here anymore, and every year I really look forward to sending out a holiday card. It's something, my, a family tradition we've had for years that my my mother and father always did, and it just seems incomprehensible that I wouldn't send a holiday card out. But I couldn't, in good conscience, do this. I, I, a, I didn't know who it would be from. Is it from all four of us? Is it from just me? I mean, I I couldn't get around sort of like the logistics of it, but I also felt sort of inauthentic having this big smiling family when we're going through a really, really hard time. But the last thing that occurred to me is I don't need to send a holiday card. If people aren't sitting by their mailbox waiting for my holiday card to arrive, but I felt huge amounts of shame not doing that. And I had to stop and be like, well, why do I feel this shame around this? What, where is this coming from? Whose voice is in my head right now? Who's, what, who's, whose mind am I in? Who's talking to me right now? Is it the... You know, is it my mom and the tradition of sending out cards? Is it the, you know, the the desire to feel to appear perfect in my community? Where is it coming from? 
when in my gut I knew the right thing to do was just to give it a buy this year. So if I can identify mm-hmm. the, the voice that's whispering in my ear and where it's coming from, sometimes I'm able to take a different action and avoid feeling shameful about it. But it involves digging down to sort of the, the root cause of things. And um, that I cannot do on my own. I need to talk to other people about it. And particularly somebody who can sort of cut through my BS and tell me that I'm minimizing or maximizing or telling myself a story that just it just isn't true. Um, so that really that really gets out to the to the reaching out piece of it and how difficult that can be and um, you know especially when I was actively drinking and I didn't want to ask for help and I didn't want anybody to help me and I kind of created disastrous scenarios where people had to come in and help me but I've since learned that if I am able to just not fear vulnerability quite so much and say I'm feeling this way or that way or I've done something or I'm thinking of doing something that might create a problem in my life, that person really can help me put things in perspective. And I honestly can say that I've never been laughed at. I've never had somebody say, oh, my God, what are you, crazy? I mean, that you know, the people in my life that I trust, they love me and they want what's best for me. And it's my own fear of being vulnerable that pre- that prevents me from letting them help me. Because when somebody comes to me and asks for help, I'm I bend over backwards. I'm overjoyed to be able to help them, and I'm honored and flattered and, and humbled that they've come to me. So how arrogant of it is is it of me to not allow people to do that back? And the only boundary that or the only, um, the only barrier I have for that is feeling shameful and vulnerable. And it's, a, it's an icky feeling, but, <clears throat> excuse me, what I've, you know, the other thing that I'm learning is that I, I have to be able to look directly at something that's causing me to feel shameful or vulnerable. And sometimes I have to acknowledge what it is. Maybe it's something I did while I was drinking. I have to figure that out, say, okay, I'm feeling really shameful about that. Maybe I'm not strong enough to really deal with how I'm going to fix that, but I at least have to understand that that's the root cause of why I feel badly about myself right now and not engage in other behaviors that avoid looking straight at something that's uncomfortable, like working too much or you know, putting out a perfect holiday card so everybody thinks everything's fine. You know, I'm I'm the queen of the F word, the fine word. Um, mm-hmm. That I, I I owe it to myself and to the people who love me to just sit and quietly contemplate what is it that I'm trying to avoid feeling. Um, and the last point that I'll make is that I I, I my daughter is 12 now, and we have uh, we've had a lot of really interesting conversations, especially as it pertains to my relapse, and that she's in middle school now, and middle school is just a shame-riddled opportunity. I mean, uh, couldn't pay me a million dollars to go back to sixth grade, but <laughs> having having conversations with her about things like mistakes, and and to get back to the point we had originally of, you know, guilt is feeling shame about uh, feeling badly about something we did, and shame is feeling badly about who we are, and. When I'm talking to her about things that she's feeling shameful about or badly about, you know, the way that I speak to her and the advice that I give her, things like, you know, we are not defined by the mistakes that we make. We are defined by how we respond to them and what we do and how we learn and grow from things. And as a, in general, as a, as a, as a species, we don't really learn from the things that are handed to us on a silver platter. We learn from things that are hard and painful and we have to go through them, we can't go around them, and getting sober is at the top of that list. Getting sober is is, is one of the hardest things that anybody can ever do. 
Um, so I look at her and I say, you know, I'm I'm glad you made this mistake. I'm glad that these things are happening to you because you have an opportunity. This is teaching you something that, you know, you can embrace and, and you don't have to make this mistake again. And if you do, that just means there's something else it had, that it needed to teach you. And then I stop myself and I think, listen to the way that you speak to her. And you do not talk to yourself this way. I'm not this kind to myself. I'm not this compassionate to myself. But I believe it with all my heart when I'm speaking to her. And so when I get caught in that negative dialogue and that negative self-talk, or I'm, I'm twisted up in a resentment or a ruminating cycle about something somebody said or something I didn't say right, or I sort of think, well, what would I say to my daughter about this? You know, you'd start by owning it, and then you'd talk to somebody about it, and then you'd learn from it and develop, you know, some self-compassion for your own humanity and the fact that we make mistakes. And, um, you know, I'd say I can I can actively do this maybe 40% of the time. I mean, this is not something that comes very easily. But when I find myself truly suffering on the inside, and believe me, separation and divorce are ripe with opportunities for lots of questioning of, of myself and feeling guilty and badly and shameful about lots of different things, I literally try to step out of myself and say, how would I advise my best friend or my daughter or somebody else? And can I can I really try to cultivate that same compassion for myself, and uh, it helps. It really helps a lot. And um, when I'm able to be compassionate with myself, I'm also able to look directly at something as it really is, as opposed to the way the story that I'm creating around it, just to make it more shameful or less shameful. It's very hard. That self-honesty piece is very difficult. So I'm going to resist saying at this point, did that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> I said I'm sorry, it to can you repeat everything you just said? <laughs> I did not understand a word. Oh, yes, I'm sure. I, yeah. As I nod I'm sure nobody did. in agreement to everything you said. Yeah, it's just it's, that there's always a work in progress, and um, in particular when it comes to early recovery and, you know, working through all the things that we, without our anesthesia, without our alcohol or drugs or whatever it is that we do to avoid working through the things that we were drinking over, there's almost always shame at the bottom of it somehow, somewhere. Mm-hmm. And we're doing it stone cold sober and feeling extremely naked and emotionally vulnerable. It's like having your skin stripped off, really, is mm-hmm. what it feels like. It is so courageous and so brave and so life-changing. You know, I, I find myself now in a place where I am astonished at the things that I'm capable of doing sober and sane and balanced and generally content um, because I'm doing it with self-compassion and with honesty and I'm not trying to go around it. I'm going through it. And by going through it, I'm going to get to the other side and I, I will have learned. And then something else will come along and there will be plenty of opportunities to grow again. But the gift of being present in our own lives is its immeasurable. And mm-hmm. being present in your own life comes with vulnerability and fear and shame um and those things are are probably the strongest teachers that at least that I have in my own life so you know I'm I I can get to the point where I can actually be grateful for the things that have been the most painful because it's from those that the, the biggest gifts really really do come my way so we're coming you know toward the end of our hour sorry go ahead I was just going to say, one of the coolest things I found was just that, you know, like, we go through these things sober, and it, and it's, you know, just, like, realizing, 
you know, all these things that I used to drink over, you know, you can get through them without drinking, and you don't have to add on the shame of drinking and how you feel about that. It's um, and they and you know you get through them and you put them behind you where you know just I don't know for some reason I you know well I guess I thought drinking solved everything <laughs> it really solved nothing well it does temporarily it works until it doesn't really you know it's a it's that bandaid over a bullet hole you know mm-hmm. you're slapping bandaids yeah. over profuse bleeding and thinking you're solving the problem but it's not going to stop bleeding until you get to the root of the wound that's the whole that's the whole key. And it's supposed to hurt. The things that that end up changing our lives the most for the better are the things that usually hurt the most. It's just a it's a it's a reality. At least it has been for me. Mm. Stupid, dumb, gross. <laughs> 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 so anyway, um, before we close the show, what we do usually do is you know, we don't have guests today, but I, I give um, Jean and Amanda both of you uh, some thoughts uh, anything that a takeaway you have from tonight's show or something that you really want to uh, emphasize before we before we say goodbye yeah this is Jean I I always take notes during the show and I, I love this chance at the end to sort of read some of the things that I jotted down because that's really just a thought stream of everything I learn as I'm going but um, as Amanda was speaking I was reminded of a quote of Brene Brown's that I heard just the other day on uh, Super Soul Sunday. And she says, when perfectionism is driving us, shame is riding shotgun and fear mm. is that annoying backseat driver. I love and, that. Yeah. And Say that one uh, more time. Could, do you mind repeating that? When, I'm reading it, so I can repeat oh, yes. it quite Thank eloquently. Uh, when <laughs> perfectionism is driving us, Shame is riding shotgun, and fear is that annoying backseat driver. Oh, love it. Perfectionism, shame, shame, and fear. Fear, yeah. They're all interwoven, and none of them are good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it also struck me as we were talking, um, I've learned so much from participating in the Bubble Hour, and one of my big, big, big learns this year was about codependency, which I thought mean, used to think meant spouse of addicted person and found out that codependency really means being dependent on other people for your own identity. So a lot of us in recovery find that this is one of our really root um, problems or I don't know if it's a condition that we have to learn to sort of change and deal with. But if you are a codependent person, you define yourself as others see you. And that means, for me, I'm very hyper aware of how do I look right now? You know, like, am I walking too aggressively? Am, you know, do I look too confident? Or whatever, you know? I'm always kind of, I, I used to think I was being considerate of how I was received by others, but what I was really doing was constantly checking other people to figure out what they thought and how I needed to be and all of that. So defining yourself through others' eyes leaves you very susceptible to shame. And mm. just as we were all sharing tonight, you know, I thought, you know, we all struggle with codependency and we all struggle with shame. And it seems like it really, really has something to do with each other. So mm-hmm. that was one thought I had. And as Amanda was sharing, and Amanda, a powerful share tonight, really one of one of my favorite um, shares that you've had was really, really moving to me. And it struck me that for me, recovery has really involved, you talked about the difference between how 
you looked on the outside as a confident person and how you felt on the inside and the gap between those two things. And for me, recovery has really been more than anything about closing the gap between mm-hmm. my insides and my outsides and just healing it, not just not just narrowing the disparity, but healing that gaping wound between the two. And finally, um, in dealing with shame, I really have found that as I get kinder and kinder with myself and the more I build this shame resiliency, the kinder I am to other people because I'm less judgmental. So if I don't see, you know, um, not being a great housekeeper as not being a shameful thing, then I don't judge other people that way either. So I really, I'm just shocked at myself. Like I'm really amazed at the times when I'm like, oh, well, I guess that person's having a bad day, you know, uh-huh. instead of thinking, oh, what a witch. <laughs> so that's nicer too because I'm just not caught up in this cycle of negativity as much. And I guess I want to put that out there as as something to kind of offer some hope and encouragement for people that are feeling really stuck, that this this type of awareness and healing it has a snowball effect that'll really boost your recovery and really yeah. permeate many unexpected places in your life. So thank you so for true. the discussion tonight, you guys. It was really good. That's very true. Thank you, Jean. How about you, Amanda? Um, well, actually, something... Oh, my God, my train of thought. <laughs> the Jean just... Oh. <laughs> also, when my dog came up, she <laughs> wants pets. Um <laughs> The um that would kind of similar to what Jean was just saying. One thing I found, um, and I don't know if it relates to shame so much, but you know, just with the um with other people, um, I you know, I guess through one of the things benefits of recovery is, you know, there's some people that just don't understand us, and um and are there's I've learned that there's certain everyone is who they are, and they're just doing their best to be who they are. And there are some people that are just incapable of understanding certain things. And so instead of getting angry at someone for not being on my level, um, this is not always the case, by the way, um, I actually have compassion and say, you know, you know, sometimes it's almost, you know, it's sad that to me that they, you know, can't look at life from a bigger picture because I think recovery has opened my eyes up to be, um, kinder, a kinder person, and having more patience and tolerance with people. And, you know, some people, they don't have the benefit of a recovery. Um, and, you know, learning, you know, and digging into these things that we get to dig into. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, it, it relieves me of resentments. It doesn't always work because sometimes I'm just pissed, you know, when someone acts a certain way. But um, that does help me with resentments. And I had another thought. Oh God! <laughs> I hate when I but do this. But then something shiny you know, happens, and, right? Yeah, then something shiny happens, and there goes my thought right out the window. <laughs> um, it's, I don't know. This is—it's just—it's such a great um, conversation. Oh, I know what I was going to talk about. Just a little bit. Um, when I took recovery language training at uh, back in June. And as far as shame goes with drinking, uh, you know, a lot of the shame that we feel about um, being alcoholics or being in recovery is um, stuff that, you know, that we put on ourselves. And the the first thing that we can do or the first thing they teach us in, 
communicating to other people about our recovery is that first we need to commu- you know communicate with ourselves and stop being ashamed of ourselves and having some pride and um you know uh, uh pride's the wrong word you know have you know appreci- appreciation for ourselves that we're doing something really hard mm-hmm. and um it's a huge accomplishment and not everyone's going to understand it and that's okay um, mm-hmm. But you know, we we need to feel it from the inside first, so we can project that outward. And it's amazing how, when we change how we feel about ourselves, it also changes how other people feel about us. So that's kind of the reverse of that codependency. Mm-hmm. Um, and and oh yeah, codependency is yeah, that is shame. And code, I you know that's why I read Melody Beauty all the time because. I just, you know, getting into recovery, I realized I am just a huge codependent. Um, and I never would have thought that about myself because, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a part of me on the outside or there there's a part of me that is just like, you know, take me as I am, you know, because that's all I can be. And I do feel that way. Um, but then there's another part that I realize is like the secret people pleaser that I'm only re- somewhat aware of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm yeah. working on that. I I just want to piggyback quickly, Amanda, on what you said too about uh, shame as it relates to recovery and the and the training and the things uh, that language actually plays a big part in this. We talked a lot tonight about inner dialogue and the way that we speak to ourselves. And um, you know, I was talking to somebody who was newly coming into sobriety recently, and she was talking about all the shame she felt and guilt she felt about her drinking and the things that she had done and. She said, "Oh, but you don't really seem to have a, you know, you don't really seem to feel this." And I said, "No, no, no, I do. I do feel those things except that like Amanda you said earlier, I I am not ashamed of being in recovery. I never will be." And so that when I'm talking to people that are exterior to my inner world, I say things like I'm in recovery. I don't say I'm an alcoholic because that's that's private. That's something that I talk to other alcoholics about because they know what I mean when I say that. But when I so, you know, I was at a party the other night, and somebody offered me a drink, and I said, "No, thanks. I'm in recovery." And they said, "Oh, tell me about that." And that's mm. it's the language seems like a small thing, but it isn't because it really does. It drives our perceptions of ourselves, and it drives the people's perceptions of us. Um, and that also pertains to the way we talk to ourselves. You know, I'm trying to do this thing where if I start to call call myself bad names, I have to stop and think of three good things that I that I think about myself. I feel ridiculous doing it, and I feel conceited and awful. And then I have to say, "Oh, I just said conceited and awful." Now I have to think of two more nice things. You know, it's a, but it, it, the, the language is important. I mean, I know I'm a writer, and I I place a lot of emphasis on words, but words are powerful. They really are. And um, the the one of the takeaways that I had from tonight too is is I'm thinking about somebody who might still be struggling and thinking, "Oh, this all sounds really great and shiny and beautiful, and oh, on the other side of shame, there's unicorns and rainbows." But how in the hell do I get there? And um, you know, that really ties, that falls right back on what Brene Brown talked about—the importance of speaking and voice and reaching out. And um, if there's a, this whole show is an example of the power of Me Too and the reason we feel so good and we learn so much from each other is that we spend some time being vulnerable and risking, just taking a little bit of a risk and saying, this is how I feel and hoping that you'll love me anyway or appreciate me anyway or at least respect me anyway. And um, it just shows the power of that. And and just taking that first little leap to find somebody to say, listen, I'm feeling shame. I'm just, this is how I'm feeling 
and watch what happens. Take the leap and do it, and you're going to hear a me too because everybody understands what that feeling is. Not everybody can understand recovery or alcoholism or addiction, but everybody understands struggle. Everybody understands shame, and everybody can appreciate the kind of um, courage it takes to be able to say, I need help, and start mm-hmm. small. If you're not ready to say, I need help because I drink too much, just say, I need help because I feel really badly, and I feel alone, or I feel, you know, it's it's like Jean said, it snowballs. It really it's the first little step towards... Um, things that are amazing, and the reason that that was my takeaway is that every, as you and, and uh, as Jean and Amanda were speaking, I'm just you can't see me, but I'm nodding my head. It's like we all share <laughs> the same brain. We really yeah, do. Me too. <laughs> and yeah. we're just three of millions, millions of people who have um, who have that same feeling. And when we all get together, it's it's a there's an energy and a and a kind of a karma in the room that is indescribable. So. Um, if you find yourself listening to the show and nodding your head at the things that we're saying, uh, you know, have hope because there's lots of people out there who will, will nod their head right along with you. Um, so we have gone a little past our time, but this has been a fantastic show. Thank you to both of you. And I want to make sure to say Thank to you, learn Ellie. more about Brene Brown Thank and her you. research on shame resiliency, go to her website, BreneBrown.com, and that's B-R-E-N-E-B-R-O-W-N.com. And we'd also like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. There you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour, where you can listen to any of our shows directly from our website or follow a link to subscribe to our um, podcasts and also other initiatives around recovery advocacy. Also at our website, TheBubbleHour.com, you will find a link to many recovery resources, including Jean's fabulous blog, Unpickled. Or also you can email us anytime at thebubblehour at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Please let us know your feedback about tonight's show and any other topic suggestions you may have. So thank you, all of you, for listening, and to you, Jean and Amanda. And I hope you guys have a great evening. Take care. Thanks, Ellie. Good night, Amanda. Good night. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.